Welcome to episode 235 of the No Proscenium Podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm your host, Noah Nelson, coming to you from the No Pro Studio, a.k.a. the kitchen table here in Los Angeles. This week on the show, we have our XR correspondent. (laughs) Why did I do like a robot? Because we're talking about the future. Our XR correspondent, Will Cherry, is here uh, in studio with me to talk about our trip, uh, his trip and my trip that that crossed over at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival where Will just did like almost everything there was XR in the New Frontier section and I did a portion of it. So this is somewhere between like an after dark episode and a middle of the day hyper caffeinated episode because it's the team talking about stuff they saw. There's a lot of exciting stuff that was at the New Frontier this year. Uh, there's a real maturation of storytelling in XR. And when we talk about XR, we're talking about both VR and AR, just the whole realm of anything where uh, technology becomes uh, a lens for either observing or interacting with the reality around you. There, that, that starts to be like a useful definition. <laughs> I know people uh, constantly argue about it, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, this is a fun episode, and Will and I are very caffeinated, and uh, you're going to get our insights into what's going on out there uh, in this just kind of no-holds-barred uh, discussion of a bunch of the stuff. Not everything we saw, but a bunch of the stuff that we saw at Sundance this year. And again, amazing lineup, and so very thankful Uh, to Sundance for dragging me out uh, to Park City and letting me be on the Welcome to Biodigital Theater panel that was moderated by Sarah Ellis. Because if that didn't happen, I wouldn't be able to tell you today that we have a new speaker that we've announced for the Here Summit and Festival. And that speaker is Sarah Ellis. Digital director of digital development for the Royal Shakespeare Company, who was our moderator on that panel at Sundance, and who is an, an amazing person. And I am super stoked that she's going to be on our Saturday lineup at here. When it comes to theater, I don't think there are many bigger names than the Royal Shakespeare Company. They are, after all, the Royal Shakespeare Company. So this is just super exciting, and particularly because the RSC is diving deep into this intersection of technology and performance. So this is, you know, the theater institution in the world uh, approaching our immersive space with open eyes and eager hands and getting in there. And Sarah and I have had a couple of great conversations um, outside of the panel. And I'm just, I'm just so so very stoked uh, for all of you who don't know her to get a chance to meet her. This is going to be rad. She is not the only person we announced this week. Oh, no, 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 no. We've had a few announcements in reserve. So also coming through are our friends from Myco2. That would be David Wally and Free Forjanam. Uh, and we've got David Jacobson of Invisible North. 
uh, and they're going to be taking us uh, into their work on the activation for the Irishmen that they did. They like took over Little Italy in New York City uh, over the holiday season for a minute there. And they've and I mean, if you if you pay attention to the marketing activation world, Myco Two just keeps on making headlines. Uh, David's team just did the Westworld. Um, a dinner pop-up at CES that got a lot of people talking and freaked a lot of people out. Uh, and that was delightful. Uh, from Paris, we've got Melanie Dory of Madame Lupin coming in. Uh, she's also our no-pro correspondent in Paris uh, and ran the Here Festival's uh, January satellite event. Uh, there was a town hall meetup in Paris. Uh, that was just in January. I just said that. Um, and I just noticed a typo in the... <laughs> newsletter that I sent out. Um, uh, yeah, uh, that's, that's great. Uh, really wonderful. Um, LARP scholar, uh, Jenea Kemper, uh, shares with us her vision of role-playing as means of liberation for people of marginalized identities. And Rachel Joy Victor will be taking us beyond story worlds, drawing lessons from the world of narrative design. And now I'm just going to be thinking all day about that typo. You go in, you start revising things, and then you don't catch stuff. Okay. Such is the way of the world. That's not the only thing that got announced in that here newsletter that went out today, the one with the glaring typo I just saw. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to be talking about forever. Um, we also are really excited because E3W Productions just announced the title and the on-sale date for their next show, which is going to be part of the pilot festival. It's called Where the Others Are. And uh, it starts up uh, before the festival, but there is going to be, of course, the festival run of it. And there's also going to be a little exclusive window for badge holders uh, if you don't get a chance to see the show. I do encourage you, if you have the ability to, to catch the show before the festival, because we're going to have an extremely limited run of tickets. We're only going to be doing it for a couple of nights. And this is a show that has two people at a time in it. Right. And it runs a couple of times a night. So you can imagine that the math here means that all 300 people are not going to be able to see this show. Mm -mm, shaking my head. Right. As sure as there's a typo in the newsletter, <laughs> not everyone's going to get a chance to see it. But uh, if you are in Los Angeles already, uh, you want to check this out. The pre-festival one starts March 4th uh, and goes through the 22nd. Uh, these are the folks who are behind in another room. Uh, this is just, it's just exciting to see them work and they are the masters of the small form. Uh, the whole thing's taking place in an Airstream trailer. Uh, when they have full control over an environment, which they did with the last edition of In Another Room, um, <sighs> nobody does it better. I'm going to say it right then and there. Nobody does it better. Uh, so you want to check that out. Uh, that information went out over all channels today. You can find it on their Instagram, our newswire at NoPro, on Everything Immersive, and in that newsletter with the typo in it. Um, one last thing on here. Um, a little behind the, the, the curtain setup. We've sent badge links out to Everyone who's registered. I know I've said this before, but but some folks maybe didn't pay attention. We've sent badge links out to everyone who's registered for a full price badge. Just about everybody. There's like a very small percentage of folks we haven't sent out. But like we're talking like I, I one hand. I can count in one hand the number of people I didn't send a link to. 
Um, and, and that's because they're coming in and it's like, what do you have to near? You're just, you're not remotely in our world. Um, that's it. I think like five people haven't gotten links. So, um, you are probably, if you're listening to this, you're probably not one of those five. So here's the deal. A lot of those links are winding up in people's promotions folder. If they use Gmail or they might be landing in spam. If you don't use Gmail, those links are sitting there. They're waiting for you. They've been waiting for you for weeks. Some folks got the pre-sale links and they're still waiting there. Just like been there forever. There are far more people who have registered now than we have badges left. And in two weeks, we put out the workshop and festival picker. You want to have bought your badge by then because once that starts going, it's going to get harder to get your first choices on things. And as you can see in this lineup, you want to be there. And we are selling tickets and new people register and they get the link and they buy them. It's dwindling, dwindling, dwindling. So I would advise acting now. This next week is your best shot to make sure that you get your badge, you get your, you know, you have a good shot at getting your first choice amongst workshops and festival picks, and you're in in time for the pre-sales on uh, the exclusive window sales on things like The Nest, which we're going to have an exclusive window for buying on, and the festival week Outside of festival time, there'll be a pre-sale uh, on uh, an exclusive window sale for where the others are. So all that stuff is going to be happening, and it's going to be available just to badge holders. There you go. That's the pitch. Check your spam. We are not done announcing speakers. There's some panels that we're rounding out right now, so there's going to be even more people on. Um, we did just announce at long last we've got our... Uh, hotel uh, link, our, our festival summit rate at our hotel partner, uh, the Hotel Constance in Pasadena, just four blocks from the Pasadena Playhouse. Uh, we're super excited to be putting people up there and that they are extending a discount rate to our guests. Um, you will want to check that out. Uh, it's a nice hotel. Uh, the rooms are not necessarily, they're really, they're pretty darn expensive without the code. And even with the code, uh, I know they'd be outside of my budget range, uh, my own personal budget range, but, um, they might not be for you. And if they are outside your budget range, there are other options. Pasadena has a lot of stuff and some pretty good transportation options. If you are going to stay outside, uh, Metro goes there and isn't far from the playhouse. Uh, and there's, there's ground transpo and, um, parking in around there, there's a lot of $5 lots. So, um, trying to do our best to make this easy on you. I know this was a lot about our event and uh, particularly on an episode that's all about Sundance. And I know this a lot about our event, uh, and there's going to be folks listening in who are, you know, Will's friends. Uh, hello. I uh, haven't heard the show before. And you're like, what is all this? Uh, I just encourage you, if you're wondering why I'm going on at length about this, uh, to inform our audience, um, check out the programming and see who we've got coming along. Uh, so herefest.com slash programming, and uh, you might just be interested. Okay, uh, let's do the part of the podcast that we always do, which is um, we want to thank our Patreon backers. Uh, Patreon is how I literally pay my bills. Um, like rent is cut 
from the money we get on Patreon. And I live in Los Angeles, and you can see how much money we make on Patreon. And you're like, how do you do it? And I'm like, I don't know. Not for much longer at this rate. Uh, but without the help of the following people, uh, we could not do this. Our two latest backers are Haley and then Michael Augustine. Uh, thank you both for jumping on board. Uh, it really helps out. And our sustaining backers are Mark Baltazar, Jan Budman, Paul F., Lonnie Hansen, Ari Hurston, Sam Kinkin, Sydney Guillory, Jeremy Charles Hahn, and now Brittany. Thank you all so much for helping us do what we do. Um, if the whole audience chipped in, I would no longer have any anxiety over surviving. Uh, so hello, whole audience. Please chip in. Patreon.com slash no proscenium. Um, herefest.com for all the stuff about the Summit and Festival. And now, with no further ado, Will Cherry, our XR correspondent, and myself talking about Sundance 2020. <laughs> Everybody, we are in the stacks at Thymelia Arts here in East Hollywood. Um, it was a devil of a day. We were supposed to record this at the No Pro Studio, aka the kitchen table, but uh, the landlord decided to bolt the foundation today without warning me, uh, which is awesome. So, sitting across from me right now here at the stacks, uh, and the stacks are part of Thymelia's operations. So, uh, they provide us with. Uh, our office space here in Los Angeles. So uh, give them a shout out and a, and a hey, hey, holler if you're looking for space to uh, do some immersive theater stuff for some auditions or rehearsal rooms, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that is what they are here for. And for helping us out in a pinch and saying, hey, go to this room. It, it's actually soundproofed for recording things. So yeah, if you. we sound really clear right now, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Thymelia Arts. Yeah, exactly. That voice is Will Cherry, who is our XR. XR oh, I see. I screwed up. You did it right a second ago. It's fine. It's actually a weird phrase to say XR correspondent, so we can just go VRAR correspondent. Oh, I think XR is fading at this point. You think XR is fading? Because like Ben Lang just posted a thing I liked, and I liked it and retweeted it the other day, which was like XR, and then it's like, you know, a, it was like a flowchart type thing. Like everything's under XR. It's like AR's over here, VR's over there. I like XR also because if you put an initial in, you can get or initial in a vowel, and you can get Zor. So I nearly said you are Zor. Oh no no no! <laughs> we don't we don't say the god of XR. His name must not be spoken. I'm tempting fate. Zor is gonna come and crash all of our bios. Um, no kidding. Um, <laughs> too real. Too too far far too real. Uh, particularly after last night, but that's another here nor there. Um. We are here because the last time we saw each other was in Park City, Utah, where we were. Uh, well, we both were roughly attending Sundance Film Festival. Yes. And we were both uh, attending this last week for the New Frontiers section of the film festival. And I will tell you, after being there for about about a week, I saw zero, count them, zero films. And yet your schedule, which you showed me, was absolutely crazy and mm -hmm. jam-packed. And you caught, did you catch everything that was at the New Frontiers XR I, selection? I'm a little upset. I missed uh, four of the VR films that were in one film block and two experiences at the Ray, uh, Living Distance and My Trip. Mm. Kind I, of upsetting. But everything else, I, absolutely everything else I caught. I wish I'd known that you hadn't seen Living Distance and My Trip. I would have made a point to catch at least my trip because there was a, a moment when I could have 
And I was like, eh, I think Will got that one. Yeah, Will would catch the weird stuff. Yeah. Um, I was there um, for the panel that we did. Welcome to Biodigital Theater. Well, we did. I was invited to be on the panel. Uh, it was hosted, uh, it was moderated by Sarah Ellis, uh, who is the uh, head of digital for the Royal Shakespeare Company. And in fact, I'm just going to, Will's got the booklet here. So let me say who was on the panel and like not mess up. Mm, yeah, Noah's please, go- please read my literature. Noah's going to the notes. Um, so Toby Coffey, uh, who is producer on All Kinds of Limbo for the Royal National Theater in London. Uh, Gilles Joban. Uh, Jaban, I think actually, uh, I probably sc- I screw up names. Um, uh, Dance Trail uh, and VRI, uh, Yetu Dada, uh, who was with Atamu, and Theo, uh, whose last name I will completely butcher, uh, so I will not do it. Uh, who had Antigon, um, and like I said, m- moderated by Sarah Ellis, director of digital development at the Royal Shakespeare Company. Um, and it was an absolutely wonderful panel put together by Sundance. And uh, there may be a transcript at some point. So it's recorded, but they never, they, they sometimes they'll get little bits and bobs, but they never put out like the full recordings. It's just not a thing they do necessarily. Yeah, it's not like uh, the game developer conference or GDC where they have a vault of everything that's been recorded yeah. and previous attendees could see them. That'd be a nice little addition for them, actually. Yeah. I mean, I, I understand why. I mean, Sundance runs incredibly smoothly. Oh, yeah. Like, like it is, it is from a logistical standpoint, something to aspire as someone who makes a summit and festival. That's the standard I hold myself against is Sundance. Uh, but they don't give themselves that extra added of like, and now get all the video stuff like up and in a vault and whatnot. And that's really convenient. But I think there's also something to, there, there's an idea about like being there. I mean, there's n- this was this was this wasn't your first Sundance. What it was it? actually my second, but second. this is the first one where my main mission was nothing but New Frontiers. Mm. Yeah, um, this was this was my third. Uh, it's been about eight years. Park City's changed so much since really? last time. So much development. Anyway, that's that's the incidental stuff that like, you know, you don't you don't need to hear about that. You don't need to hear about you know you know. Have taking every meal at squatters. Uh, yeah, pub. and now for some real content. <laughs> but we're going to get into this stuff. Um, so, Will, what was what was the number one standout thing for you in the selections this year? Because there was a bunch of stuff. There was a lot out there. I would say the majority of the work this year, as it usually goes more or less, is somewhat esoteric. It It tends to be, when I say the new frontier, it really is a different form of storytelling and tends to be a little more abstract. That being said, the two major pieces this year that I think everyone wanted to see, even if they they couldn't, it was the main goal, was Scarecrow, followed shortly thereafter by the Book of Distance. Everything else after that is roughly tied for third, you know, Metamorphosis, Persuasion Machines, these other pieces. But I would say that Scarecrow was the hardest to get into, minus, I'm forgetting about one that was on the far side, Spaced Out. Um, Spaced Out, I think, had a little bit more of a gimmick to it. It was great but the gimmick was the pool it was all the extra elements but scarecrow to me holds a very high bar yeah well and that and that had a lot to do with throughput issues because scarecrow was a piece that involved a live performer yes and so they had to take breaks um and i know that when i did it like i was ready to go and they're like hey maybe 20 minutes and so i actually rescheduled restructured my schedule really fast oh, really? i got lucky in that by coming in on like tuesday and then having wednesday wednesday was like the one dead day so there were two main venues for uh, the XR stuff, the New Frontier. Mm-hmm. There was um, 
The Ray, and then there was New Frontier Central. And uh, The Ray, you had to have a ticket for, and you had like a think like an hour and a half window, I think it was. Roughly, yeah, yeah. Per, per entry. And it's only, I think, maybe three times per day at max is when yeah. it was open to give both docents and artists uh, time for break and for artist hours. Yeah. And, and so that meant like, you know, you got in there and depending on which thing you saw, you maybe got to see two things, maybe saw three. You had to be very strategic. And that apparently sold out like, the second, you know, those became available. Mm-hmm. And then with, at center central, uh, you, you had to have a badge and you could just, there was a big window. You could just like hang out, but scarecrow, you know, um, the sign up, you know, took, it took a while, you know, like, um, the, there was the usual system at central. Okay. Yeah. You did see everything. I did. Oh, I did great. Okay. Everything. Then I have questions for you. Um, yeah. but actually for scarecrow, oddly enough, that one really took so much for people. They, they would be lined up at 10 AM when the doors opened Sometimes I heard that that artists had artist hours between nine and ten, but that was they did. that yeah. was rarer. But it happens. Uh, press was well before I got the chance to go in, but at ten a.m. when those doors opened, people flock right to Scarecrow, feeling as much as they can. It's a Disneyland Fast Pass scenario. Oh yeah, no, totally. And you, I think, went in at ten, and I got my slot for an hour and a half later. Yeah, and I was third in line. It just is so tricky because they have to roll people in from from earlier. So when you had that, it was like this weird privilege that kind of came to you to like, I have it, I've locked in. And if you're in another experience, which I was in Haifa, they texted me and said, we're ready for you. I was <laughs> so impatient to get out of Haifa to move over like four feet to do Scarecrow yeah. that I was worried that I would miss my slot. Yeah. No, it's definitely a little bit, a little bit nerve wracking on that. And I think one of the reasons why we talk about this is that, and I think a big thing for us to talk about and something that we, we touched on very briefly in the panel, but I think I'm going to go on at length. Um, it's definitely a column. It's like one of the, the main issue with some of these pieces um, in terms of people being able to get access to them mm-hmm. is just things like Scarecrow, which require an actor, uh, things that require like a, a space to set things up in, whether it's Antigon or it's, um, you know, uh, Otamu, um, or if it's anything like that, anything involves like an installation, um, you know, there there aren't spaces to pop this stuff up in, right? Yeah. And and some of this, some of the times, some of the things with the installation, they don't really need it. And other things, it benefits so much. And so there's there's a need, an unanswered need for uh, a place to plug in these independent, these art house mm-hmm. uh, location based experiences. And right now, the two big location based experience companies that we've got, uh, Dreamscape. And the void. Mm-hmm. My brain. Sorry, everyone. My brain is totally fried from the last two weeks. So you're, like, you're functioning on coffee and a piece of cake at this uh, point. I'm, which I'm lucky to be doing. So like, if I make some terrible mistake, uh, let me fill in as best I can. <laughs> yes, please do. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to get worried about my brain health. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not even joking. Uh, but I'm just because I'm so fried. I'm also I got a cold. Um, no, it's not that one. I don't think. Um, I hope it's not. Anyway, the I'm, point. Go ahead. The point. Sorry. The point was uh, there's those two companies. They're interested in their product, mm-hmm. right? Like we're at this stage, like we are, like like Hollywood was a hundred years ago, where you'd go to the Fox Theater to see Fox movies. You'd go to the Paramount to see Paramount movies, um, and they were awesome theaters. They were beautiful. They're gorgeous. They're still standing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they were multi-purpose. Um, but if you wanted to see 
a Warner Brothers picture, you had to go down to a different theater. Right. And there isn't really a place where they're plugging this sort of stuff in. And that's that's no fault at all of the companies who are making the, the LBEIP stuff. Uh, but there's definitely this question that as a collective of people, we have to answer around how do we get distribution for this work? Even at the level of some of these installation pieces and some of the stuff that's going on can't travel to smaller festivals. Right, uh, be- right. Because they don't, the smaller festivals don't have the budget to pull this stuff off properly. Yeah, the footprint for these kind of things is quite quite heavy. And I know there are companies out there, I was actually chatting with a few uh, right after Sundance on private meetings that are trying to solve this problem. And you do have to make certain adjustments. Things have to be lost in the process to bring that to a, mov- a movable, maneuverable system. And that's, while it is not fortunate, it hopefully will open up some democratization of uh, content, both single, multiplayer, and even with performance in the long run. Now we're getting down into the into the, the, the wonky parts of it, but like Scarecrow was incredibly popular. Why? What was, what was the draw there? What's the piece? It's interesting because having a background, unfortunately, helping out Justin Denton and friends on Chained, a Victorian Nightmare, it screamed the same type of thing. There's something where New Frontier offered people the ability to connect with a story they haven't before. So I could watch a, a 120-minute movie, a 90-minute movie, and by the end of it, I follow along with the characters enough that if something bad happens, I want to cry. I feel with them. The power of the New Frontiers, especially with Scarecrow, is connecting with a character that reacts to you so closely, so quickly, that you have nothing but empathy immediately upon really engaging with them. And it's this one-to-one that people kind of fell for. Part of it is the gimmick of a human performer, and they want to test their limits. But for others, bless you. Uh, for others, it's the fact that uh, you're engaged 100% all the time, and that uh, that reaction is so strong. Sundance is not a game festival; it's a film festival. They'll never go to games. That's de- that's deserving of GDC and other great conferences dedicated to video games and content for interactive work. But you'll be surprised by the fact that the most interactive stuff in New Frontier was the most successful. Yeah. Well, and 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 I think like. You know, uh, just just to set the ground piece, what the what the piece is is, um, it's a fable. Um, it's it's the setup. It, you know, involves some of the aesthetics of the setup are like old timey film, and mm-hmm. there's there's you know uh, some shadow puppets, and then it resolves itself into you know game engine rendered video, but rendered in real time. Mm-hmm. And there's this scarecrow character who lives inside a fable, and you lightly interact with them. You build up a little relationship, and by the end of it, I feel comfortable kind of spoiling this because, like, the chance that people have seen us are like pretty low. It is low. Yeah. It actually reminds me a lot of uh, Wizard of Oz in a small element. Oh, it totally reminds. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, like the Scarecrow character is very, you know, there's, there's and there's stuff with like some of the imagery. Yes, very, very strong that. and slightly, slightly Christian. I don't know. Why I had a weird vibe there, but I felt it. No, no. I think I think well, I think part of that was because the video they were running outside was you know the scarecrow being like up. On, it was very Christ-like. It was yeah, very, very Christ-like pose. Yeah. But that's yeah. that's normal for scarecrows. Yeah. So but, I take it. But we we saw that so often. Yeah. It was pretty heavy, <laughs> it, it but was, but in a good artistic way, right. I would say. No, but it's the fact that it was on it was looping on the on the video outside. So mm-hmm. like when you see something in a in a Jesus Christ pose like thirty times in a day, mm-hmm. you start to the the pose disappears and the cross remains. Right. So it's right. it's embedded in it'd be like if the person was making an m shape with their body suddenly yeah. we'd want french fries it's so you odd know, but you're you know, tr- if you're it's totally a cross true. salvation if it's an m french fries this is how we're programmed and if it's a bat 
justice. Um. <laughs> it's hard to hold composure. Uh, anyway, yes. The, so the story was that this this scarecrow uh, and all these other people in this town, uh, this magical land of uh, clowns, magicians, and uh, and performers, uh, all lost their hearts. Essentially, these firebirds, as it were, came in and literally it was pretty grotesque yeah. in the first old time film. Yeah, ate their hearts, burned everything down. And they tell this little story to get you kind of going, and then they put you in a space. And in front of the scarecrow, would, and gives you the slight indication that his heart was so buried that he's still with us. Yeah. And you, upon just lightly, almost touching him, bring that little spark back, and you regrow his heart with you, and you take its form. That's that's generally like the very abstract yeah. description. But in playing with him and learning these things, kind of playing with a little bit of the technology there, you establish a relationship. And then when the firebirds attack, which is the, the heightened moment of, oh no, we've established this bond. I must defend him. And he cowers behind you. I know. I know. It was, that was like, that was an amazing choice. It's like, something that no so one's done yet. Like yeah. I know with Chained, it was very much performer to you, performer to you, and never a performer to third thing to you, except for maybe like the clock or certain small yeah. in- instances. But like, I really even see that in immersive theater. Right? Yeah. Where like this idea that like, be my defender. Yeah. Right. Like be my shield. Mm-hmm. And it's such, and just, just the physical relationship. Cause it's like, you know, you're not just looking at someone, you're feeling someone, they've got their hand on your shoulder. You can feel the tremor. You can yeah. feel the fear. Yeah. You can feel their fear and it's up to you mm-hmm. to like protect them. And by that point you want to protect them. Yes. And this is a simple, I mean, in so many ways, this is a simple psychological hack. Yes. Right. So but, way better achieved now that there was no dialogue. Yeah. At all in the entire piece, which is great for a completely Korean team that spoke very little English, but they knew what the general interaction modes were in proxemics and how to actually address people, even if they're in headset, to appropriately match that. It's very well done with uh, the telegraphing. Yeah. Well, and there's something I love about this this idea that there are some parts of the human experience, particularly in a global society, mm-hmm. that translate over, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if we dig down deep enough, we know through, we, we know that like different cultures have different relationships to proximity, to touching, to just all sorts of stuff, mm-hmm. right? Like not, there's, there is no entirely true universal content, con, uh, constant aside from like smiles and eye contact, yeah. right? Like that's pretty much, as, that's the fundamental thing in for humans is pretty much that. But like, there know. there are other steps. Yeah. In in some of Jeremy Balenson's work out of Stanford for the Human Computer Interaction Lab, uh, they go over a couple of great things a, a couple of years ago, like the Midas Touch principle, mm. the idea that upon touching another person in what they were having a conversation with or engaging with, uh, the likelihood that they're able to help you on small tasks increases by like eighty percent. Interesting. The test that went further was if we digitize that touch, if we made it so that you never actually reach over and touch someone on the shoulder, but you actually uh, pressed a button on a keyboard and like an armband on them vibrates that says, and you know that it means, oh, they, they went in to extend an arm. Yeah. The percentage is the same. You still get the sensation that someone has touched you in a way and you are emotionally touched by it to help them further. So the Midas touch principle translates over to VR and other simulations. Well, I know there's 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 a whole bunch of work that say like third rail projects does. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean they're they're taking from their sources about just about the the different levels of the nervous system mm-hmm. and like different qualities of touch. And 
there's there's a degree to which a slightly deeper touch is better than a surface touch because a surface touch can kind of cause uh, a, a repulsion and retraction. Yes. But like you get, you start touching at the level of like the musculature, mm-hmm. you're squeezing down a little bit more, and then that actually allows someone to relax. Oh. All this stuff, of course, can be abused, which is what sucks. But if you don't understand what's going on, if you don't understand these these mechanics, mm-hmm. you're missing out on a whole layer of 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 interaction, yeah. particularly of human interaction, because when we're talking about embodied experiences, we're talking about you know everything that's coming through on the person, and and that's one of the things about something like Scarecrow is you because you have another person in the room, mm-hmm. you have a performer, you have that entire vocabulary opened up to you, right? In a way that right now you don't just through technological feedback yeah and there's there's two other things i want to spotlight on scarecrow before i think we could move to another great piece uh one being that the introduction of the touch in that entire piece is actually he brushes your hand with straw not with his actual hand with straw it's a quick brush as of a playful like can can you feel me i can feel you can you feel me and that question that questioning of it opens it up to you subconsciously to say oh there's touch involved I must be more okay with this. Or if you you recoil on that, then the performer knows that they have to go a little bit lighter on the introduction of touch. This is an Mm. interesting... So the whole time, the performer is actually testing you to see how well you handle response. I went... I like dove right in. And at the end, actually, one of the producers, uh, whose name has escaped me, I have his card, uh, reached out and and they gave me a signed poster and they said, you're the most animated we've ever had. (laughs) And I still hold on to that poster. I, I love that team. Um, but it's because that invitation to to touch, to engagement, um, I just dove in. But other people, that's their testing ground. Nice. And then that was that was the big piece. The other one is that all the other moments that you're engaging with this person, they're obviously testing new technology about cold and heat. There's these sensors they put on your wrist to allow that to translate, and that's just to help you bond a bit further with them, which is pretty pretty powerful. Yeah. I will say the game mechanic though of the birds coming at you, and you have like a oven mitt. Yeah. type of thing to catch them was a little trite but in the game designer sense yeah but you really do ignore that you really your goal is to protect and you realize you have to complete this. yeah i didn't i didn't quite realize at first what i was doing right. entirely but yeah. that was fine because it was super forgiving and it's not about the game it's about the fable side right. of things absolutely yeah. you know so at a certain point i was like oh yeah it's like a green lantern construct of course i would make a catcher's mitt because like that's all green lantern yeah and, and of course we've established the entire time that is a magical creature and you engage in magic together exactly which is just further drives that home. So I love that piece. It obviously had a few breaking points, but they weren't, they were definitely not detractors for me. No. Like it's a Vive trackers. It's very doable and surprisingly probably very portable. So yeah. I'm, in, I'm definitely intrigued to see this as it probably goes around festivals because I'm sure they will do more. I would hope so. So yeah, if, whether that one's being Tribeca or South by or somewhere else down the line, mm-hmm because I don't know what their schedule is. Like, keep an eye out for this. What's the name of the team? Do you have that in the notes? I do have that. It Actually, it's also in the... Here, we can, we can dig it out. So, the team behind this one is... Da, 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 da. Nope, that's the Biodigital Theater side. Nope, that's Dance Trail. Uh, it is... Oh, nope. Uh, just has the lead artists listed, so never mind. Uh, we don't have we'll just crop that part out. <clears throat> nah, nah. Uh, like, the mis- mistakes were made. Don't worry. I will reach out to them because <laughs> I'll be doing a, hopefully a full piece with them because yeah. I really want to hear more about how they push that one forward. Nice. What's next on your list? Um, so that was the big one. Uh, well, you said the other, the other big one that people reacted to or, or trying to get to was Book of Distance. Right. 
So uh, I have to give some mad credit to uh, Matthew Needlehauser, who was running uh, Metamorphic next to it. Uh, he got me in one morning before I had a badge. Thank you. Sorry, Sundance. Um, <laughs> to see that. And I got to just jump in. And I did it at the same time as one of his docents, one of the people working the festival. And it's 25 minutes, and it'll actually release onto home platforms, uh, Oculus, Vive, Port, I think, and Steam in the next month or two. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh, yeah, it goes right out. And hopefully for sale, because I would put money for this one. Uh, 25 minutes, a brilliant documentary told uh, the director, which I think, uh, if I have it right, I want to get it His first name head. is Randall. Yes, Randall Okita. Thank you. Yes. Um, so I know that because it's burned into my brain from having experienced it. Right, it yeah. is burned in. He, it's so well done in that it is very well staged. The salient cues on it are masterful. The way that it transfers your attention from piece to piece in a diorama sense that isn't realistic, but just enough to get you going. Yeah. So this is a piece about, this is a documentary piece. It is about his grandfather's experience as first uh, an emigre from Hiroshima to Canada mm-hmm. before World War II, and then about Japanese internment in Canada during World War II, the loss of his family in Hiroshima. Um, it's a really heavy piece. Incredibly. Um I do not know why on one of the last days they still didn't have tissues in, in space. Oh, that's so right. I forgot. <laughs> like, like, I came, I ugly cried in that thing. It's also the, it is maybe the single most immersive theater-like project I've seen in VR. It is rendered entirely in a game engine. Mm-hmm. It is done very, uh, it, the, the characters are rendered as game engine characters. It is very... Um, suggestive, kind of like Kentucky Route Zero. They don't have eyes. It's similar to actually the underpresents in terms of its uh, the narrative flow there, oh, or not the narrative flow, but more the the design of the characters. Yeah, we don't see particular facial features, but the voice work is so strong. The voice work is so strong. Well, because the voice work it is a lot. It's Randall and it's a lot of his father, his father uh, doing recollections. Mm-hmm. So it's these, uh, it's it's real. Audio narrative, mm-hmm. and in a lot of ways, that touches on. It reminds me of like Nani De La Pena's work, yeah, uh, with Hunger in Los Angeles and uh, Use of Force, where mm-hmm. we, we're getting the real audio. We don't have the real audio from those moments, but we do see real documents. We're able to handle the documents. We're able to connect with his family, and the staging is just done so well. And the fact that it's an, it is not trying to be naturalistic in the visual style, but it is. Bare, and, and there's a lot of stuff that's expressionistic in terms of the interaction style. But by doing that, and by having it be a real story and having it be real voices, it's just so grounded. I found it to be, as I noted, I ugly cried. Um, it's it's terribly powerful, and it uses the surreality of its visual to create something emotionally very potent. Um, it's, it's done actually, I would equate this to similar, um, documentaries that when they use graphics, they really want to show you a sense of, of scale of the matter. They, mm. and yet in VR, it's so difficult for us to render so many things. Like I'm giving you an example of the, the rail cars, this, the rail cars full of people. Yeah. And we are in one rail car and we feel like we're with him in this rail car full of nameless faces. They're white silhouettes. There's no major details about these, these models. But the scale when we start lifting up every single rail car's walls and, and realizing how many people there all are. Those people. Yeah. I don't need the details. I understand the scale of the yeah. weight of the moment. Yeah. And that's actually not done very often 
in VR. And it's and which drives me bonkers because the fact that you're putting you can put someone in a skybox, mm-hmm. you can put someone in an environment, and if we think we, we flip over onto gaming and we think are what are the moments that often take our breath away in gaming? Mm-hmm. It's reaching the reaching high up on a mountain and getting the skybox and and having this oversight, or mm-hmm. you know, being channeling through some small tunnel and then coming out into a large space and getting the detail and the sense of where we are taking something in. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this piece does that and sometimes does it in a very minimalist way. Mm-hmm. And even though it's just a sketch, even though it's just, um, you know, not a realistic, that moment you're talking about when, when the, you just start to see how many people are being shipped off to mm-hmm. internment. It's a gut punch. And, uh, and, and just so effective. And right now, such a such an incredible piece to have circulating at the moment, in, in the moment of history that we're in. Definitely. And it then, actually fits surprisingly well to our current yeah. uh, climate, in a yeah. way. Yeah, and the, and the National Film Board of Canada, uh, they, they're one of the teams producing on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've been doing, and if the NFCB has been doing, uh, uh, they've been doing um, incredible work. Uh, for years now, uh, and always usually have at least a project in the New Frontier. Yeah, if, I think they have more than one this year. Yeah, um, no, I'm pretty sure, right? Yeah. So, so, and this one, this one, we know it's we know it's slated for Viport and everything. Like, do we know if it's is this going to be able to work on the Quest? Or I don't or? think it's optimized for Quest yeah. yet. There's a bit more there. I think it needs to be it needs to be done for that yeah. sake. Uh, but I can definitely see it happening probably on their roadmap. I can ask that question. That's yeah. a great question. Yeah, because uh, the more people can check this out, and I, I'm sure they'll. There may be some cost associated with it, but like I, I also think this is one of those I'm pieces. I'm hoping that the sales of it on other platforms will promote it to go onto Quest, and yeah. I'm sure that's something that you know I would happily put on Oculus and go for. It's yeah. it's a small bit, but it would be definitely something for people to, to try and do. Yeah, I, I think I would commend the piece for a couple things, especially the sense of scale, but also its sense of um, the motion capture used in it oh, yeah. was brilliant and I love it was really well done incredibly polished motion capture for these pieces you didn't sense any moment of, of decay or move movement that that lost or needed cleanup and in the moments when the motion capture ended the light in that scene faded so you weren't focusing on it it was really well choreographed yeah I would say people <clears throat> people who do immersive theater should pay attention to this piece oh yeah you it, know it captures like, well yeah and, and it, it particularly about like the relationship of the the the, the audience to the work mm-hmm. um, and there's just there's so much this is a piece that's gonna be worth studying for for yeah. some time and this was a piece that really made me excited about how storytelling and particularly like documentary storytelling is maturing mm-hmm. in XR uh, and here's a fun fact for you that I, I know about the piece there's one moment in it where we actually have the grandfather sitting down in what would be almost you know, our time a few years back. Um, I'm not giving anything away here. But in the moment where he's sitting in the chair and he's directly across from us, that grandfather poses, he's like sitting there and moving. That's actually Randall doing the motion capture of his grandfather in the final scene where with the letter. That's all I'm going to tell you. Oh, nice. But nice. that's actually Randall. And there's a really powerful connection there with him and his grandfather. He's trying to understand that role and he takes it. That is incredibly powerful and it's a good thing to, to know after experiencing the piece. Yeah. So long and short, when this comes out, if you have the ability, just snatch it up. Yeah. You, you need to. Those two, those two were, were some of my big ones. Mm-hmm. I also, I want to draw attention to um, the stuff over the biodigital theater real quick. Oh, yeah. Go and, for it. and 
yeah, let me let me let me knock those out one at a time. Let me start with Atamu, uh, which is an absolutely gorgeous piece. Um, this one, the it's a story about it's set in it's set in uh, Kenya mm-hmm. uh, and set in <coughs> kind of kind of Kenya's um, mythic past is, is the wrong term, but it's set. It's set in in the past. It's set at a time when the legendarium had it that if you if you progressed around the Mogombo tree seven times, mm-hmm. you would be able to you could change your gender. You could you could take on the body that you wanted to be. You would be recognized. There was a it was a process for for you know transformation for mm-hmm. for becoming transgender. And right now uh, there's a real issue um, there with with just demonization of the LGBT community as a whole. Uh, and they wanted to address this by reaching into their own, their own history, their own yeah, early, early human history. Yeah. And go before the Bible, before everything else, yeah. there was this and, and this show, acceptance. Yeah. And exactly show that there was a, a method and an acceptance that it was part of the culture. Um, and what's really beautiful about this is it's a wonderfully, Again, it's rendered in game engine, but it's mo-capped uh, with dancers performing the roles. And you, as the audience, you can handle up to eight people at a time. Mm-hmm. You're cast in the roles of, of ancestor spirits who are there just to help this individual with their journey. Mm-hmm. And you do that through simple gesture. You're just, you're, you're at, there's at points where you're kind of brought in in kind of a ritualistic way yeah. to shepherd them through the journey and, in, and encourage them. You don't have full agency, but this idea that you're the supportive community, your presence alone, just being there is enough to help transport this, this being you're, you're witnessing of their journey mm-hmm. of their transformation is what enables them to be accepted. And there's, it's just, it's just so good on that level. Mm-hmm. And then on top, so not only like is it so good on that level, but just techno- technically, it's also so good on that level. Mm-hmm. Like visually, it's it's beautiful. Again, it's rendered in game engine, so we're not stuck in like a photo reel, hiccuping hiccuping on things. Um, it's it's very evocative and suggestive in terms of like not suggestive like salacious, but like you know in terms of its visual style, um, and really lets you release yourself into the story in a way that going for a super photo reel would probably like keep keep you back from it. So yeah. it's just it's this fable, right? So uh if 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 Book of Distance is living history, then this is a this is a fable. And it was just so it was it too was it was beautiful. It was beautiful to just like witness this. Oh yeah, it and, was it was gorgeous. And and to be able to know that from the outside you know, if you watched, I did it with like two other people that like you would have seen as essentially enacting a ritual. And I think there's something very smart in terms of the, the order, the second order of design here of thinking about what is the role of the participant in this. And they've done a lot of work as a team thinking about, well, like, do we, do we want to gamify? You know, like how interactive do we want to make it? Do we want to get some more interaction here? And for this iteration of the piece, they've settled on this sort of gentle interaction. So like, and and a little bit of feedback, right? So like the 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 controllers a, a would rumble fly, haptic, yeah, yeah. A, little, a little rumble haptic to like let you know and kind of encourage you or let you know that your yeah. magic was working, and that that little bit, that little bit of embodiment, 
that little bit of playing with the the fourth wall, mm-hmm. like letting people kind of toy with the veil. I think, I think, as creators of immersive stuff, not enough people recognize the power of just toying with the veil a little bit, of just giving the audience a little bit of agency and creating that tension. Because like, you, you give people full agency and total control of the story and the story's gonna go wherever. And some people some people think they want that and some people do want that and they wanna like run run a game that night. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think the vast majority of people, they want to feel the thrill of touching the reality, but they want to see where the story goes. Yeah, they want to they want to see what this is really about, and not just what they imagine it's about. Uh, and that that's the line for co-creation. And that's that's a fair place to yeah. be. I think Atomu covers this well, and, and they pass exceedingly well with flying colors. The what I call the grandmother test mm. in in VR. If you can put your grandmother in an experience and her have at the base level. <laughs> without doing anything, a great experience and feel like she made a difference, then you pass. You pass with flying colors. That's great. Uh, most experiences should be able to pull this off without demanding too much. Atomu does this because it knows where it is. Sundance Film Festival, there's not a lot of people who know how interaction design works and they're not gamers. Most of the time when people are in that experience and the great spirit is calling upon them to, to perform this action, to move this forward, in that case, then they actually would wait. Like I actually tested it once. I waited. I did not use my hands. And when I actually saw what was happening and felt that rumble, that was actually just default. It happens anyway. Uh, this is not a bad design. It didn't make it feel like, oh, the interaction's meaningless. For me, maybe a little bit because I come from a gamer background. But for others, it gives them the sense that you can or cannot, but no matter what, you're doing it. Your presence alone is making a difference. And there was a moment when it asked for people to raise their hands and to yell out, you know, you can do it, essentially. Um, definitely not that, that trite of a phrase, but you can do it. You can, you yeah, can, thank you God, can come that. across. And, uh, <laughs> it doesn't go at an Adam Sandler movie on us. No, thank goodness. But <laughs> I wish. Uh, in that one, in my session when I did it, no one, I didn't hear anyone speak in the room. Now, we're wearing noise-canceling headphones. When I went back again to capture some imagery and some video because I wanted to see other people in it, some of the people who made the experience went in as well and they actually raised their hands and they practically <laughs> shouted. They they went full volume. And when one of them did it, everybody else did too. The crowd dynamic actually yeah. worked. Well, and that's and that's a that's a big thing right there, right? I mean, we've seen that for years. You know, it takes someone it takes a group leader, right? Someone's gotta go and like test the boundaries. I mean I watched that you roll back to like when the day shall declare it first showed up in LA Mm -hmm. and you know, I saw it pretty early on in its first run in LA and there was a moment where the audience has formed like a natural kind of you proscenium line. And I knew that I knew just by watching where the lights were like where the light, anywhere the light didn't touch, that was where the audience could be. Ah. And so I just crossed the line and walked through and got myself a better angle. And as soon as I did that, everyone else did. I went back and saw it a little bit later. And because I didn't want to cross the line, no one did. Like, yeah. You know, no, no, people don't know they have the freedom in, unless they're shown. And I think that's a big thing. Like, you got to show them. You can't just tell them what they can do or what their freedom is. You must demonstrate it. You know? I think that actually makes a really good segue to one of the pieces at Sundance this year. 
Go for it. Metamorphic. All right, let's go for metamorphic. Uh, and it's exactly that, because metamorphic's um, sole function was to make you question who you are, who you see other people as, and not what's real and what's not, but more like how do you interact with things that you can't tell if they are truly there or not. Um, and in that space, that experience is actually heavily built on touch. And it's built on another person being in the place with you and maybe a third wink nudge. Uh, or a fourth. <laughs> or a fourth for some. Yeah. In uh, that piece, unless prompted to, half the participants didn't know they could touch the other person and may not have felt that they should touch the other person. Yeah. And I'm actually curious how you went through metamorphic, if you did. And, I did. And what happened to you in that piece? What it, you saw and what you saw and did? I had this great moment in metamorphic where I thought I was watching um, a time delay copy of myself Oh, because um, I was taking certain actions and I was being mimicked mm-hmm. in those actions I was taking. And then we got to this point of like, you know, approaching and I think it was like my right hand to my mirror's left hand mm-hmm. and reaching out and then boom, we actually made contact. Everybody's, oh my God, that was another person. Uh-huh. And that was, that was an incredibly wonderfully trippy moment mm-hmm. of, I think I'm watching a mirror image. I think I'm watching myself. Turns out, no, I'm watching someone else who's just mimicking what I'm doing. Um, and and where that in like a little brief flash took my brain was absolutely fantastic. So mm-hmm. yeah, this piece is really, really neat because it starts off with like a piece of mirror work, um, yeah. you know, and, and like there's a transition through from like kind of the, the static world you're into into a much more dynamic world and the world keeps on changing and beings keep on showing up. And the way they structure it is at first you can see that there's someone else who's being loaded in at the same time as you, but it's suggested visually, and this is a little bit of a spoiler, but it's sort of suggested that you're going to be separate. Yeah, they're just running it for the sake of having more people run through at the same time. And and that is not the case at all. Yeah. And and But you don't realize it right off the bat. Mm-hmm. And... I think it's. I think there's something really cool there. Um, it's a setup for what they intend to have be like a, a, a bigger and a longer form piece yeah. in, in the long run. But the the they're on. They're definitely on the right track. And that's something true with like a lot of these pieces at Sundance, where it's like this might be the first or the second or maybe even the third iteration on its way towards something else. Some pieces are feel finished, like I, Book I, of Distance yeah. is finished in, in right? classic you Sundance know. fashion. Yeah, you know, a prototype is usually made. By the end of August, all first submission to Sundance. October is when they get the go-ahead that says, can you make it into the festival if you finish the product? And then funding comes through, and then they rush for two months to get it out. And it's a very difficult time for artists. There are no holidays for people going to Sundance no. for their projects. No. Um, and most of the time, those projects need a little bit of tweaking at the end. Uh, they're done, but all, everyone wishes they could do more with it, yeah. um, metamorphic included. Well, and, and this mirrors sort of like the... the reality for films at Sundance yeah. where you know Sundance is always judging a rough cut of the film and that's mm-hmm. what winds up making it in and sometimes you know to their chagrin you know this, that same film may make it into South by South but I think God, what was it the Brie Larson film um something 12 it was it was the it was her kind of a breakout indie film and like they passed on it 
famously mm-hmm. and then it was it was at south by just a few months later and everyone was like why'd you pass on this and like we saw a rough cut you know I like mean, this yeah. was not the movie we saw right like if we had saw that movie we totally would have put it in it so all the time oh so much and they see like 10,000 films and and it's been great i mean what shari's managed to do with new frontier in terms of creating a platform for this work like everyone everyone who's like an xr nerd you know knows that you know, it was hunger in Los Angeles at mm-hmm. New Frontier that presaged this entire renaissance. Yeah. Right? Like Palmer Lucky was Nani's assistant, you know, on that team. And he was like, you know, building kit for that piece. And then that that kit led to, you know, the the Kickstarter for the Rift. This is how it all began. We are a very tiny community. Right. So people, but people outside might not know, like, yeah. you know, and, and how important this platform has been and how much it's done to create the space, um, particularly on the narrative side mm-hmm. uh, and, and definitely on the, the sort of like, you know, fuzzy experiential side. Um, Oh, by the yeah. way, I really want to just roll back ever so quickly. For those who didn't know what Metamorphic was, um, when you go in, it's very similar to something that would look like Quill. Uh, yeah. And I want to throw another thing at well, you. It was built in Quill. It was built in Quill, yeah. but a custom version in a way that allowed them to not to make brushstrokes independently of their own time they were created. It's a weird thing to say that Quill, when you make your brushstrokes and the pieces animated, it animates in the order of each stroke. Mm. And they were able to maneuver that differently so they could build an environment around you that was very... Kind of reminded me of Vaporwave a little bit. Uh, a very beautiful pastel world, and you take the form of these brush jokes, a human form of it. And the two things here that I loved. One, the mirror effect. When you put the headset on, an arch forms in front of you, and you see a, a mirror, essentially, of you. And you kind of feel like, okay, this is me. This is the Proteus effect taken hold. This is something also from Bailison's lab in Stanford, that when you see yourself in a virtual environment as something else you begin to embody the traits of that thing. It, you just subconsciously, you start to take on some of what it is. You follow the epistemic knowledge you have of that creature. So if I saw a lobster, I'd be like, I guess I will act a little bit more like a lobster. Just how much, curiosity. Speaking of curiosity, how much, uh, uh, the, the professor you speak of, mm-hmm. how much has he investigated mask work in the theater? Um, you know, I haven't read anything about that, but I know I can ask some friends who work with him yeah. more or less at, at Striver and kind of ask those questions. I'm sure he looks into it pretty heavily. Yeah. I'd be really curious. Cause like the second you said that I flashed to, you know, the chap, the closing chapters of, uh, Keith Johnston's impro, mm-hmm. which are all about mask work. And I also flashed to like the mask work classes like I took yeah. in, in college. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of mask work is about and there's one, there's a way that you handle masks in mm-hmm. order to make sure that you like, don't like break their power. Right. The air quotes on that. <clears throat> but like, you know, one of the things as a performer you don't want to do is you don't want to like take the mask and like throw it on your face, like in front of the mirror. Like yeah. it's always like you turn your back to the mirror, you put it on, you give yourself a second to set, settle. Then you turn around and you see the mask on you. And then always in a mask class, you see that mask and you start taking on the traits of the mask. Yes. And you often see that, performers will take on similar traits Mm -hmm. like masks have a voice to them yes um and and you can see that no sometimes performers won't but in but there are times independent of of anyone like oh i've seen someone wear that mask before it's like no no the mask has a power to it and so this this is a very similar effect uh and the cool thing about that uh, that kind of adds on is the produce effect is something where it's what you believe you look like whether or not the person sees you with that look 
Right. Imagine putting on a mask and you see yourself in the mirror and everyone else sees no mask. Oh, I mean, there's a whole level mm-hmm. to multi-person VR experiences. And you get to start seeing this in Jumanji. Or like VR at, chat even. Yeah. Where, well, I mean, specifically, I mean, you, you see it in VR chat, you know, in terms of like, you know, are people being like, you, you could like do some of that stuff. Sure. But like with Jumanji in particular, you here's an experience where, you know, you're put into an avatar, but then on top of it, you are seeing stuff that the other players aren't seeing. Mm-hmm. Right, you've got access to a view of the world, mm-hmm. and this idea of siloing information from one participant to another, in part to create a social dynamic that we can't piece together what the real world really looks like or what's really going on, because we all have different different pieces of it. I think that's not fully exploited yet mm-hmm. in the space. Mm-hmm. And then take that step beyond. It's like you know, playing, playing the trickster God thing of like, no, but like you look like a banana. It's like, no, I'm not a banana. I'm a grape. Mm -hmm. You know, you're Mm -hmm. a banana. No, I'm a watermelon, you know, like that sort of stuff. Right. Yeah. One last thing before I want to move on. And that's just to give credit to Matthew's team. Did you, how close did you get to the person who was alongside you in metamorphic? Um, I mean like physically close? Physically close, yeah. I mean, we touched it at, at, at one point. Did you hear their heartbeat? I do not remember hearing their heartbeat. That was something I noticed very like explicitly, and I was very close to my partner the whole time. I've never met this woman in my life. She was a lovely woman after, I, after the fact that we hugged. We had this, <coughs> this odd, slow dance of sorts, very renaissance. But in the moments when I'm incredibly close to her, like, like really within six inches, seven inches, you can hear the other person's heartbeat. Interesting. And it's a really nice touch. We, we I don't think we were ever in contact long enough Got for it. that effect to kick in. So, but that's like I just want to give that that props where it's due. Yeah. Let's uh let's run through some more. Sure. Um did you catch uh all kinds of limbo? I all kinds of limbo, let me think. Yes. Yes. Oh yeah. Oh man. What a great fun time. Yeah. It's something that takes uh, a tomu in a way because I did a tomu followed by all kinds of limbo and it says for one you're kind of passive you're there you're watching and for the for all kinds of limbo they encourage you to dance no one can tell you're dancing so you can do it and that was that <laughs> open feeling where if you see like there are these representations of people in that experience where you are like a, a small column of light uh, essentially that's all you see yeah that's, but you can, for, that's their safety sake because yeah. there's like up to like 20 people in the, in the yeah and, and yeah. You can still tell there's some dancing there. There's some bobbing of heads. You can tell. Yeah. And it's really, really nice because it just opens up to be, be you. And the music is great. Yeah. And the volumetric capture is so crisp. Oh, yeah. No, so it's, well done. It's, it's, it's super well done. So this is it's called a, a VR musical journey by Rafi Bushman and Nubia Brandon with the New Shape Orchestra. And it's just... <clears throat> And you can see the uh, if you see the the card, they've got the columns of light there that look like they're just lights, and you don't know that they're yeah. they're you. Um, but they've got this great uh, this sort of great exploration of what it means to be a, a black woman in Britain, and you know, connected or disconnected from uh, the you know the traditions of her culture, particularly her traditions of culture through a British. You know, yeah, uh, like a lens, frame of frame. sorts, yeah. yeah, and and the frame keeps on being 
reinvented and, and pulled back into the past. And so style changes and stages change. And so the whole space reflects the moment that she's in and the musical style changes. And so it's this wonderful concert experience that yeah. has this amazing visual aspect to it. But because they have complete control over the visuals, everywhere you turn, they're able to explore thematically this idea in a way that is incredibly full. Um, but also just suggestive of what you could do uh, with capturing a live performance. Because yeah, the volumetric capture is super on point mm -hmm. and you've got free roam and there are times when she's in the middle of the room and you can get up close and there are other times when she's on the stage and she's on the wall and she's past the limit of where you can go. Yeah. And the fact that you can change the relationship um, to the performer in the space. It was one of the few times I felt that like there was an amazing conscious decision about how to use the physical barrier of, you know, the, the virtual wall. Yeah. Right. Like, uh, this idea that like there's a volume between the walls, but there's also things beyond. And sometimes we want things beyond and sometimes we want things inside the volume and the relationship and what's going on there in terms of what you're seeing or how you're allowed to relate to the performer. There was that a, was exciting. There was a really good balance there that they ran technically as well on that one. Everyone in that experience is wearing a quest, an Oculus Quest, and they're all together in that, which is very impressive. Volumetric capture is difficult to put into VR, and at that caliber, uh, I asked a couple of developers uh, who were there, I think not from the Atlas V team, but from whoever finished it, I believe, and uh, it was brilliant in how they said we had to make so many cuts to make sure that her fidelity was so high that you felt she was with you. And, and yet, the power of the space and running all of that at the same time it's to me, I think the first time I've ever said, yeah, that's a VR album. Like that's a full album. And I would only want to watch it and experience it and listen to it in that form. Yeah. I can also see a day when people have captured concerts mm -hmm. in this manner and, um, I wouldn't, you know, or like be able to like come out of a concert and say like, Oh, I want to go back to that concert and like have like the VR captured version of it. Yeah. But yeah, the fact that like it's, it's a volumetric capture running on a quest. Mm -hmm. I mean, having seen things like hundred percent Maggie's story and, and watching it almost melt the computer that was on a high end because that's all volumetric capture to have like a performer captured in volumetric and it running on that. And like the quest didn't even get that hot and also running so many of them at once. So we're all in the same space. Like what is even going on? Oh, for, for right? which? Oh, no, the, the fact that we're all in the space in, in this one. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah everyone yeah. simultaneously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, that, that, is, that is brilliant work. And they cut a couple corners in a way where everything is actually running a video texture. Um, so really, it's just really well done streamlining. This is me getting technical, sorry. Yeah. But it's, it's fascinating how well they put it together. And it just comes across so well. Here's another Easter egg for you. Uh, when I was there, I missed it, unfortunately. But there was a moment when um, the performer, uh, Nubia Brandon, she was there at Sundance. I didn't get to ask her any questions, but she was there. She did breathe with me. And um, sometimes she would go into the performance as it's happening, put on a headset and sing alongside her own character and <laughs> dance. And so people would be in, in this headset with noise canceling headphones, but they'd still hear two of her as if it's next to her. And it's the most interesting thing. Well, and also they would get the vibration of yeah. her singing yeah. in the room 
like to me the ultimate easter egg the moment oh if you took off the headset and that's what happened everyone took off their headset and there she was (laughs) and it was to me like that's the experience i love that how Uh, cool is that that is totally cool so i really appreciated the fact that she also wanted to go around and check out the other works right we've been at this almost an hour let's dance through some of the other stuff that we saw at sundance um we both did the we both did spaced out it, we, yep. it nearly killed me. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, the, the mask did not get a good seal on my mustache. And so I kept on taking on water. Um, that's something they should look into. <laughs> yeah. That as, one's as, a bit trickier. As, as Roger Rabbit once said, no, that would be nice. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, that, that would have, that would have helped. Uh, interesting, very interesting idea. I think you probably had a, you had a good time with that one. Right? I had a good time with it. It was also very heavy on the esoteric nature. I brought my friend Hunter with me due to the piece because he was a huge aeronautics and space nerd like massive yeah and so he was not expecting something that had a very artistic representation of the moon neither did i i yeah. gotta admit i was i thought from the framing of it i thought we were gonna get some like photorealistic like or, pretty spacey yeah and instead it was like there was it was trippy visuals which is cool but like i think if you if you jump in literally to the pool mm-hmm. and think that you're gonna get like oh this is gonna feel like i'm walking yeah. on the moon instead of spacey you had spacey with italics yeah um and that was i loved all the references to melier that was great we definitely had a lot of moon things there yeah it's something that if if i was on a substance i probably would enjoy it but also be more afraid of drowning yeah um constantly feeling like you're falling forward but not like it feel like i was having my balance issue but i'm usually very comfortable in vr so this was very surprising yeah. i think my, i think my main question for the the for these folks are mm-hmm. how far along do they think they are in terms of what they've developed, particularly around the whole like drowning or not drowning thing. Mm. Um, because I think, you know, if, if someone's familiar with, with scuba, I think you're probably like pretty good off, but also, I mean, literally just the bushiness of my mustache was enough oh, yeah. to break up. And it might, and you know what the truth is, I don't think my mustache is that bushy, but there was just something about the shape of it. So like I had a good few minutes where I had a seal, you know, working and I could keep my hands away. But then for most of it, I just had to hold my mask in place. And in an experience, it's supposed to be psychedelic and you're supposed to be like letting yourself go. If you're holding onto the mask, you're not letting Something yourself go. Something tells me you just shouldn't go uh, snorkeling or scuba diving. Uh, you know, or if I'm going to uh, maybe shave, but if I'm going to the snow, I'm, I literally... Oh yeah, no, if you're I, for the snow, I beard grew, all the way. I grew the beard for Sundance. Oh. I literally grew the beard for Sundance. That's okay. Well, the next anyway. time we go to space, uh, no beard. No beard. No beard uh, in space. I actually wanted... Did you go into Persuasion Machines? I did not get to do Persuasion Machines. Okay, well... Talk to me about... Tell me about it. So fascinating. Um, There's two parts of this that I really found really interesting. One was the onboard, offboard, which they had a pretty strong one. Uh, You walk into a room that's completely dark, and it's been projected onto the floor. And the projection is very, uh, you know, like computerized, which is... The whole thing here is data. And a... The projector's actually matching people standing in the space wearing um, HTC Vive wireless headsets. And you're getting below their feet a block that matches them where they go with a heart rate, with distance traveled, with like metrics. Really, really powerful. And then before you start the experience, you actually stand in front of a webcam. There's a bunch of webcams around this this, uh, cubed area of sorts, all watching inside. And you take a picture with the webcam and it it, is a calibration process. You put on the headset and you go into a digital copy of a virtual, of a room, of a future room. There's an Amazon Alexa in there. There's a laptop, a phone, a TV, a smart thermostat, a smart doorbell, all these smart devices. And essentially over the course of this uh, experience, you start learning how much data is being tracked of you. And it's 
kind of an odd parallel where, you know, you hear this voice of Alexa-like character, you know, telling you, oh, like, I, I know based off of you looking at these things with your eyes that you must be a freelancer and worried about money and in new technology and you're trying to eat healthy. And I was like, that's me. That's so me. They got me. Uh, then you have Will I Am's voice taking you into like the hacker realm going, do you realize how much you're being tracked every day? Which is obviously a great, great documentary style to say, hey, keep track of where these companies are getting all your data and where their money's coming from. So it was really powerful. And then you see obviously your face in the data at the end, which is really, really cool. Uh, spoiler alert for anyone. Um, none of that data of you is being tracked. All of it was fake, but meant to make you feel like you are being tracked all the way through. The average human heart rate is put placed at your feet. Uh, the Your face is just a face. All the web cameras that are watching you are completely pointless. But it's meant to drive home the fact and visually show you how much is actually being captured of you. So I thought that was really, really powerful. It could be a little, um, for those who might have like <laughs> uh, epilepsy, really tough on the eyes for some parts. Mm. But overall, sent a really, really solid message. And the installation alone was very, very powerful. Yeah. Well, I think I think that's that goes back to this conversation about, you know, the installation mm-hmm. effect uh, and finding ways to support that uh, as these things get out into the world. Um, and some of that's going to come down to like a few standards. But you know, there's 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 something to like you know having some particular props. Uh, so we've talked metamorphic. We've talked. Um, what else, do, what else do we want to get into? I can briefly touch on a few here. I saw Anomalia Sum, which is a, a VR um, three degrees of freedom piece. I have to say it's incredibly weird. Um, I'll write more about it later, but I can't quite put it into words. It's still very out there. Yeah, um, it's got and the, the, the image they use is very Hieronymus Bosch. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it is actually the first time I've seen some really good claymation Ooh. outside of um, uh, Isle of Dogs. Uh, essentially very good like oh they use stop motion oh this is really interesting but i can tell there might be more to this piece because it's not quite done but there is something to be said about it being interesting but it definitely caught my eyes as just fascinating while i was there definitely tough to like get all the way through but not that it's bad that it was just interesting okay aside aside from you really good claymation Mm -hmm. uh in anomalia sum anomalia sum Sum. uh which and then the whole three-off thing what since we're, we're just about on an hour here, what is the last thing that kind of like caught your eye, right? Because I think you could look back and forth and like get it down into like the, you know, into the cuts and some stuff. And hopefully we're going to start uh, having some, are we, are we going to, are we still going to do this thing? You, you want to, we're going to, we're going to do this thing. You want to uh, do, you want to do the, 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 the regular weekly XR check-in? Yeah. Thing? So, right, so cool. first thing, before I forget, I do okay. want to cover quickly Antigon. Yes. I know you, we talked about it after we both saw it together yeah. and you were not a fan. Not a fan. It's true. I <laughs> love the idea and I really want to see the comic book as reference because it is referenced on a comic book of the same name. I like the idea of motion capture performers and someone in VR performing and they see this virtual world and you see the projection behind you. The story was kind of slow but fascinating to me. Yeah. The idea is so strong, but go ahead. I I would say, like, I think that there, I, I, I agree in that I think there's something to the structure they've built. Mm-hmm. I, I do not think it was, uh, I don't, I don't think a 75 minute piece is what they should have been doing. But this is, of course, this is also the nature of the beast yeah. uh, at Sundance. Like, there's, there's experiments. And, you know, if it's, I just, I want, 
I would want some stronger writing. Mm-hmm. I think I think the performances were, were solid. Oh yeah, right. Like oh, the actors, the actors very polished on that thing. But there's the the relationship between what was going on 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 the projection and what the what the actors were doing, some of the choices that were being made. And like I know that every single time it's different, but I think that there's some stuff. There, there's there's this there's something about like 75 minutes of it, you know. Um, Whereas if it had been if it had been twenty five minutes, I probably would have been and, and a little more condensed. I might have been like, oh man, like I could go for some more of that. And I feel like that's what you want people to be doing. You want people to like come out wanting more mm-hmm. and not saying like after about a half an hour, it's like, okay, yeah, I know this is there's there's no third act here in terms of it's we're not advancing farther. Yeah, I can actually yeah. see that with the timing, uh, yeah. definitely. But I do like the idea that it took a very machinima style stance at it. Yeah. But but with that problem is that this, the progression of time becomes one-to-one you, you it's harder for you to cut between things you're only cutting between locations not between time yeah which is really fascinating yeah i think i think there's something there's really something into this f- in this form that they're playing with mm-hmm. um but you know not not every experiment is a home run so yeah Okay. Well, I mean, that's everything that that I can cover right now. And you'll be seeing a little bit more from me uh, in terms of like my Sundance Diaries that covers everything here. And uh, hopefully you get some more features asking some questions of some of the directors because there's other pieces that were there this year that were not part of the main festival. Um, Disney came by with their their, uh, VR animation myth, the Frozen 2 story that actually was there on, on the main street. And I've got another piece called Earth Songs that I caught on that was from folks near uh, earth x so there's other pieces around sundance that i will probably catch up on soon and we'll hopefully see some more of that in the future all right well more of that in the future on the site and some more uh in the podcast form as we mm-hmm. start ex- doing some experiments here mm-hmm. and uh right now we gotta race off the tube at circus to um go see what's up their sleeve with some new lbe nonsense yeah. so i said nonsense but like you know what i mean i'm intrigued yeah i'm i'm it's it's shenanigans. I should have said shenanigans and not nonsense. Shenanigans is such a better word. All right. On that note, we out. Thanks, guys. Once again, I want to thank Will for being our guest on the show and for putting up with me then for another five hours because uh, we went down to Two Bit Circus and checked out this thing called Oddball, which uh, they're launching, uh, soft launching this week. Uh, really fun multiplayer uh, paintball game using uh, the Oculus Quest as uh, the delivery system. So um, just just a lot of fun that I'll be writing that up soon. And, uh, and then we went on up at uh, Guisados on Sunset, which is really appropriate because there is a short film that's in the, uh, the New Frontier section um, that is deliverable via uh, a Vimeo link. Uh, you can like text to it um, uh, from Terrence Nance, who is the director of An Oversimplification of Her Beauty. Uh, he also has a show on HBO, the name of which escaped me at the second. Uh, but Terrence is an amazing filmmaker, and he did this lovely short piece that really is perfectly viewed on a phone. I know there's all this stuff around like short form video and Quibi and Byte and TikTok and yada, yada, yada. But like, you know, a filmmaker is a filmmaker and uh, Terrence Nance is a filmmaker and he approaches uh, the phone as a medium for it uh, and and really uses the tools. Uh, and a large part of it, uh, it's called Aguasado on Sunset and uh, it's uh, shot in part in the Guisados on Sunset. And if you haven't been to the Guisados on Sunset, um, it's part of our own mythology at this point. It is 
so good. Um, honestly, look, there's Los Angeles is the city of the taco, and there are a lot of great tacos. And the reason why we wound up at Guisados is because around the corner from Two Bit Circus is uh, Tacos Do- Ch- Chewy's Tacos Dorado, which is incredible. They uh, do uh, tacos Dorado, which are fried tacos, uh, and they've got a potato taco and a beef disherba, and just just so so good. But we got there just as they were closing, and the salsa, which is a heated salsa, very different type from what you might be normally used to at like a cold salsa bar, was out, and the chorizo beans were out. So I wasn't going to let Will like not have the full experience the first time, because that's how serious I am about tacos. And um, he hadn't been to Guisados either, so we fixed that real quick. Uh, and luckily there was parking, uh, which sometimes there isn't. Uh, don't try on game day, because they're right near the Dodger Stadium. Now, there are plenty of other Guisados. In fact, the original one is in uh, Boyle Heights. And uh, to my shame, I still have not made pilgrimage yet. Um, because you got to go to the original kitchen. If you're a fan of a particular type of food, you got to go to the original kitchen. But Guisados and Sunset is where I started my Guisados journey. And uh, there are many more. They've got in Burbank. There's, I think, one in K-Town now. Like, they're they're all over the place, relatively speaking. But that, that one on Sunset is absolutely fantastic. And uh, the key thing to get is get the quesadilla. Um, it's... It's not necessarily what you expect out of a quesadilla when you, uh, if you're, you know, a white boy from the Bay Area, uh, but it is fantastic. It is so good. And um, two or three tacos is, is kind of what you want to go do. I know you don't come here for the food. I do. Uh, but um, ask anyone. Ask Catherine. Ask Will. Ask uh, Jordan from Link Dance, Dance Theater. Um it's the real deal. And it fits because that's what we hate after this. And it's in the new frontier this year. So there, there, there. I had an excuse to talk about tacos. All right. Uh, and the horchata is really good. Like, I am a connoisseur of horchata, and it is the best horchata. Full stop. Uh, second best, the horchata, by which I judge all horchatas, is the horchata at Taqueria Cancun in Berkeley. Uh, those of you from Berkeley, you know what I'm talking about. That is still my favorite cantina. Full stop. Um, and, uh, best salsa bar in the universe, cold salsa bar. But, uh, yeah, uh, you, uh, if, if you like horchata, you need to, you need to. Exactly. Okay. It might be lunchtime. I might have issues and you might want to stick around, uh, for next week when, Actually, I don't know what we're going to do next week yet. We don't have anything again. So uh, normally, here's where I might do some forward promotion. But instead, it's like, it's a mystery to me, too. So let's see what we have on next week's episode at next week. Uh, I'm sure something will come along. Um, and um, it's, it, I'm going to do what I can to make sure that's not just another of me and the team. Uh, just because we've had, like, three, four of those, I think, already this year. We can't, like, the end of last year. So uh, we're a little, a little heavy on that. But there is going to be... Oh, here's something. Uh, there is going to be a bonus episode. Uh, Anthony, uh, David, and PG uh, have done another uh, Survivor, uh, a pre-Survivor warm-up. And so we're going to release that on the Patreon feed, feed free to everyone. A bonus episode is going to come up next week at the t- start of the week. So uh, that's what I was thinking of when I was like, what's next time? What do you want to stick around? Yes, there was something. I just didn't remember until I started talking. The Noah Nelson story. All right. Um, the caffeine is working. 
I've got stuff I gotta get done for you, and I'm gonna go do it. So let's do the credits. The music for No Persinium is, of course, by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. The backers of No Persinium, the sustaining backers, are Mark Balthazar, Jan Budbin, Paul F., Lonnie Hanson, Ari Hurston, Sam Kidkin, Sydney Guillory, Jeremy Charles Hahn, and our latest backer is Brittany. Uh, you, of course, can join them at patreon.com slash no persinium. A dollar a month helps out a, the world of difference. Uh, and honestly, uh, there's so much more we need to be doing, and uh, it'd be nice one day to pay people um, beyond when we occasionally get to pay people on the very, very rare occasion when we get to do that because we have some sort of special project. Hey, um, if you want to uh, support us in, in general, uh, we are now a legal business. Um, that's, that's finally happened. Uh, and we're working on our nonprofit status. So that's working out too. Uh, we're not yet a 501c3 uh, charitable institution. We will be at some point, maker willing. Um, assuming that 501c3 matters in the future. Um, America, what's up with that? Uh, but if you've got a project, uh, if you are if you represent a company and you're interested in doing some sustaining backing for No Persinium, uh, we're listening, the doors are open, and there are still sponsorship slots available for uh, the Here Summit and Festival. So hit us up, doors open, let's get some good done. Uh, contact me, Noah, at nopersinium.com. If you have a show that you want to announce, it's pitches at nopersinium.com. Everything you find, uh, you can find us all, all our stuff at nopersinium.com, of course. On Twitter and Facebook, we are at nopersinium. On Instagram, which is amazing, we are at no underscore persinium. Uh, that's it. That's all you need to know. Until next time, I'll see you at the show.